Hello, hello, hello. How are things going, Joe? Going good, Pete. It's been a while since we've spoke, man. How have you been? Been good, been good. You still drinking those uh, Monster Energies and trying to convince everyone they're water? I've actually been, uh, I've been jumping to several different energy drinks. Right now I have a 16 ounce Red Bull directly in front of me. It's sugar-free, it's sugar-free, but um, oh certainly, certainly not water. That's, that's for sure. Good, 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 good. So what you're saying is you also enjoy seed oils, right? No, dude, I love them. I love them. I've, I've, I went to my pantry and I replaced all of the regular animal fats with seed oils. I adore it. And we'll get started just here in a moment, folks, where we'll be talking about, you know, the macroeconomic environment. But in the meantime, Joe, I'll tell you that, you know, I found one of the things that gives me the most energy is just straight horse urine, you know, just really wakes me up in the morning. Have you tried that? I can't say I have, but at the end of the day, I'll, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be as anabolic as possible. So I will take that alpha into consideration for sure, Pete. That's great. That's great. Good to see you again, Dr. Jeff. It's been a minute. And by a minute, I mean approximately 30, 45. <laughs> right. It's been a lot of minutes, 30, 30 to 40. Good to, thanks for having me on. It was fun. I see Sam down in the audience and I think Dylan's, we're waiting on Dylan, but Joe, you're the guest of honor today, man. Welcome to the stage and thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's exciting to once again, get to chat with the best of the best at Coin Magazine Pro. I'm stoked for it. You know, an increasingly tense macro environment where it seems like basically everybody is just turned into Fed watchers. You know, we're, we're, we're nearing what seems to be the end of this massive liquidity cycle downturn that we're experiencing right now. And I'm excited to, uh, to talk shop with you guys for sure. Yeah, right on. Well, let's just get it going right away. So, I mean, you and Nick are doing some awesome work over at the Bitcoin layer. It's been fun watching your progress as well. So I know, and I know you keep tabs on all these different macro indicators. You had a lot, lots to say after uh, Powell spoke at the last FOMC meeting, like just give us kind of the 30,000 foot view from like a macro perspective, like what's going on right now? What are you looking at? What, what kind of indicators are you focused on at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a couple of things. I mean, a lot of it, boils down to forward growth expectations, forward inflation expectations, things of that nature. As we get closer to where markets are anticipating a pause will inevitably be, which is Q1 or Q2 of next year, we're really trying to, to scrounge for indicators that tell us I mean, inflation, growth and inflation are moving down. A couple of those things include the five-year, five-year inflation swap. That's a regularly traded contract. You know, market participants, basically market participants can, you know, trade whether or not they, they feel inflation is going up or down. A couple of other things as well, obviously the 10-year treasury notes, the yield on that, that's representative of forward growth expectations, forward inflation expectations, i.e. And so as you start to see a bid for that emerge and the yields start to fall on that, you could sort of see that, you know, the, the end of the tightening cycle per se is, is upon us, you know, as that bid for duration comes. Because obviously, you know, the 10-year and all the way down through the uh, the 30 year, those are high duration, you know, treasury securities. And so the only reason a, a huge sustained bid for those would be emerging is if, you know, forward rate expectations are falling. And we, we haven't seen, you know, a huge rally where where tens have started to move down substantially. We, we've actually had across the entire treasury curve, we've had several false tops for the entire year. And I think that's just indicative of of how tense and, and how, I guess, in denial markets have been the whole year. You know, they've really been anticipating that this is the meeting where we're going to get forward guidance, that there's a pause ahead. This is the meeting that we're going to get forward guidance, that there's a pause ahead. And, and as a function of being wrong every single time, we've seen rates catch a huge beta leading into the FOMC. And then, you know, 
in, in the released FOMC statement, there's no new language, there's no tonal shifts, there's nothing for the market to trade on. And then rates reprice back upward, they sell off once again. And that's, that's basically been the entire story until this last FOMC, where we actually saw some linguistic changes in the note. For the first time, we saw mention of the cumulative effects of monetary tightening and the lagging impact it takes for monetary policy to transmit throughout an economy. And the the inclusion of these words, it, it seems like pointless minutia, but it's extremely important. You know, remember, the, these unelected elders of ours, they meet in a room for, for a day and a half to try to develop what sort of language they're going to include here. And in this instance, they, they decided to deliberately include those words, cumulative effects and lagging impact. And actually, the reason for it was because some of the Fed speakers were threatening to dissent from the 75 basis point rate hike decision if that language wasn't included. There are several reports that uh, Mary Daly, uh, Lael Brainard, Susan Collins up here in Boston, they threatened to dissent uh, from Jerome Powell's decision to hike 75 basis points and actually put forth their own opinion of 50 basis points had he not included that somewhat tilted dovish language. Um, and so Jerome Powell decided to do it. And then in true Jerome Powell fashion, regardless of what the FOMC statement itself said, which, you know, it, it was sort of portending that they were going to start slowing the pace of hikes. They were acknowledging that this these, uh, this extremely aggressive monetary tightening is going to have impacts on growth. You know, he, he followed it up with uh, a still hawkish statement. But at the end of the day, are you going to listen to the, the, the statement itself, the release FOMC statement, or are you going to listen to the guy afterwards who comes up and starts wagging his finger hawkishly? Well, I'm going to listen to what the Fed speakers themselves are saying, because ultimately, the moment you start to see, you know, dissent, the you know, this disagreement among Fed speakers, these are these are important shifts at the margin that indicate, you know, at long last, we could be approaching what would be an inflection point, which is a slowing in the pace of hikes. That's what markets are currently pricing in. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it does boil down to some degree to CPI, the CPI release on Thursday and whether or not that meets expectations. So that that's a little bit of what I'm looking at right now. You know, we we've sort of identified these shifts at the margin on behalf of the Fed. And at the end of the day, like I said, we're we're in this stage where markets aren't necessarily fragile, but cracks are beginning to emerge at home and abroad. And so really all eyes are on, you know, the Fed and what sort of decisions they're making as we approach sort of the, the fever pitch for for this liquidity cycle downturn. So that's that's what I'll say for now. I'll, I'll toss it back to you guys. Yeah, I love it. And I'll just toss another question out there and then we'll let Sam and Dylan jump in here too. So, I, you know, we all watch the dollar pretty closely, right? And we know that risk assets tend to trade kind of inversely. They, they're inversely correlated with the strength of the dollar. The dollar peaked on Wednesday, September 28th at, at just under 115. It's about 114.71 or so. And then it's been, we've, we've seen a series of lower highs, right? It, it's from a TA perspective, it looks like it's possible it has peaked. What do you think? Do you think the dollar is sniffing out that there actually is a pause coming and that's why we're starting to see weakness? Or do you think this is just another pullback before the next surge higher? I tend to think that this is the real top for the dollar for, for several reasons. Other central banks are finally catching up to the pace at which the Fed has tightened. The, the Fed has tightened so unbelievably aggressively that capital flows have basically been exclusively to United States dollar capital markets. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that, that in treasuries. You know, those have been sold off precipitously for various reasons, right? We see other foreign central banks engaging in bond buying programs, like in the case of England, in the case of Japan, and also selling off their their U.S. Treasury reserves in order to, you know, their foreign exchange pegs, like in Japan, right? So there has been this sell pressure on treasuries, but 
that said, the dollar is still, you know, it's it's maintained relatively strong because it, it has had its capital market has been blessed with higher interest rates, you know, tighter policy in this really, really global inflationary environment than other countries. So I tend to think because other central banks are finally catching up, you know, and the, the, there's that, but there's also the idea that, like I just mentioned, there's this sort of pause slash inflection point to slower hikes on the horizon. I think for those two reasons, we've seen peak dollar. You're starting to see some of the exchange rates smooth out with the dollar. And obviously the, the dollar index itself peaked and, and seems to be coming back down because those interest rate differentials are actually narrowing because other central banks are catching up and because I feel you know the 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 actual inflection point towards slower hikes and then inevitably a, a pause at higher for longer is being sniffed out I, I tend to think that this is the this is the actual top for the dollar Well, Joe, it's, it's a bold call, but certainly I think Friday's move was like a four sigma move for the Dixie, which which we don't really usually see four standard deviations. And and I think most of those have been up moves. And so seeing seeing that that sort of size to the downside is certainly, you know, possibly indicative of a trend re- trend reversal. I just I just kind of really think about, you know, once this this train and once this this, I guess, lag effect of a slowing global global economy, but really like more so domestically, which is like the U.S. households are kind of just propping up on credit and the employment cycles just barely starting to turn. I really wonder, like, even with a Fed pause and if markets, you know, say, you know, buy the dip and equities go up 10, 15 percent, like, has anything really changed about the state of things? Or is it just kind of like, you know, another kick the can, punch the shorts in the face? But it really changes nothing about the real economy, just only asset prices, you know? Yeah, I fully agree. I think that Asset prices have been uncharacteristically propped up at this stage of the cycle where, you know, to this point, you 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 would expect more much more downside on asset prices than you have seen. And I think that's just a function of really everybody hoping and praying for the precedent that's been set over the last 14 years to, to occur once again. And I think it, it won't it probably will not emerge to prop up asset prices. I'm talking about. Uh, you know, slamming rates back down to the zero lower bound and, and you know, this uh, the, these bond purchasing programs coming from the Fed, and the, you know, in the form of quantitative easing or, or treasury buybacks from the treasury, um, which, uh, you know, would have sort of the, the, a similar effect to, to QE and that they would imbue banks with reserves and it would encourage credit. Uh, I don't think that there will be a Fed that emerges to save asset prices. I think if anything, you know, asset prices and their resilience is something that the Fed does not like. They would prefer if asset prices move in the other direction, right? They want the reverse wealth effect. I tend to think that the the coming inflection point when it comes to rates and the path for monetary policy in general it is going to come as a factor of financial markets fragility so you know emerging credit stress all these collateral markdowns you know rates soaring through the absolute stratosphere not just in the united states but globally right not just in dollar capital markets but for literally every single you know major g7 g10 g20 fiat i tend to think that that sort of emerging financial stress is is what's going to drive the fed to you know, shift the path for monetary policy. Not necessarily asset prices falling. Asset, if, you know, asset prices being propped up is uh, is just a punch in the face for the Fed, and so they've been unbelievably you know aggressive. I think that you know they they do run the risk of something getting out of hand. We're seeing this you know dollar shortage proliferating abroad, monitoring swap lines every single day to to see who's pulling money from the Fed. As of right now, nothing has really changed on that front. Basically, the people. Who have who have tapped the Fed for dollars were the Swiss National Bank, as everybody knows, 
and a few minor a few minor ones, but nothing really indicative of like imminent collapse of of other financial markets in which you'd see these swap lines really begin to light up. But the fact that they're being used is very telling, right? The fact that abroad in Switzerland, there are banks that are unwilling to deal with people like Credit Suisse. They're, they're literally people who are who are unwilling to fund certain financial institutions. And that's not a situation you want to be in, you know, especially with Europe. They're also contending with, you know, an inflationary recession with this aggressive tightening. And they're also facing an energy crisis, you know, moving into winter. So Europe is a massive shit show right now. I think the last thing that they would like to contend with is the extreme aggressive monetary tightening. And when you start to see lenders, you know, and dealers just not not want anything to do with you, when you start seeing financial institutions not playing nice with each other, you know, that's 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 very, very troubling. And I think those cracks will continue to proliferate and spread out across, you know, this global financial lake until more Fed speakers like Daly, like Brainerd, like Collins and like others, you know, they they start to turn the tide of the Fed, right? Jerome Powell, he's out here fighting for his reputation, right? He he ch- genuinely, you know, to he he tries to not look at the situation abroad as much as he can. And that's why all of the Fed speak from Jerome Powell has been saying their sole focus is the United States dollar. Their sole focus is the United States economy because if it wasn't, if they get, if Jerome Powell gave any inkling of mind to what's occurring over in Europe and the impact of this aggressive tightening is having over there, then chances are he wouldn't be as aggressive as he's being. I tend to think that it will be other Fed speakers taking a look at this emerging credit stress, the, these huge dollar shortages globally, and you know they'll be they'll be pushing Jerome Powell and the rest of the committee to eventually slow the pace of hikes and then pause higher for longer. Obviously, you know we 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 have we'll we'll see what sort of impact a four and a half, four seventy five or five percent risk free rate has on markets. I tend to think it won't be a good one, especially you know after everyone and their mother refinanced at at zero or one percent while it was here. But we'll see. I think that's why you know there there's the higher aspect to it, but then there's the longer aspect to it, and I think. The, the stance of higher for longer is deliberate to be able to catch anybody who did end up refinancing extremely low and saying, you know, you don't get it. You don't get to get away with this extremely cheap credit. If we're tightening credit, we're tightening it for everybody. And I think that is going to have exactly like you said, Dylan, that's going to have deleterious impact, you know, on the consumer, right, on the individual, also the business and the sovereign, right? We're seeing, yeah, it's, it's, it's not good. The U.S. Treasury is and I don't think funding for the U.S. Treasury will be much of an issue, right? Like we, we take a look at these extremely, you know, quickly rising yields. And I think a lot of people conflate that with like, you know, government funding stress and, and potentially, right, to some degree. But I think that like the, the, the bigger issue is the fact that these are used so widely as reference rates and they're held so widely as collateral that the value of them dropping and the, the value of rates rising so quickly, that will be more of an issue for people who actually hold these things and borrow it as spread to them than the United States, you know, treasury itself. I, th- I think it'll have no problem issuing you debt and paying for it, you know, even if it is. And obviously, you know, the math sort of points to the fact that it will be with printed money. Yeah, bit of a rant there, but that's, ju- that's you know, generally what I'm looking at. Hey, I don't know if this would be a good time to segue quick. Joe, I don't know how much attention you pay to what's going on with SBF and FTX and Binance and all this stuff. Sam and Dylan are doing some pretty awesome work on it at the moment. And well, first of all, Dylan or Sam, would you guys want to kind of tease out the issue that you're going to, I think you're going to release it later today. Is that right? And just sort of what the general gist of it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a developing story and we're trying to figure it out along with everything else. With with everyone else, as to if it's a total 
total nothing burger or potentially, you know, kind of a deja vu moment from earlier in the spring of this crypto credit contagion. Alameda's balance sheet was leaked last week. From the second quarter, the the relationship between Alameda and FTX is opaque at best and shady at worst. And now because of the fears, there's somewhat of an exchange run on FTX. So that's what we know. And NFTX's token is sitting above, you know, multi- multi like 20 month support with no volume until about you know 50% discount to price and the balance sheet of Alameda looks to be levered against FTT tokens presumably like we don't know but with it beyond a reasonable doubt we can somewhat infer that you know 80% of their net equity in Alameda as of the second quarter was FTT tokens which are completely illiquid in which they own so I'm not trying to steal a steal a show from from Joe here but it seems like a sells not 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 comparing them to Celsius directly. I'm not saying they're insolvent. I'm not saying these things. I'm saying that the signs that you would look for in terms of something really not smelling right that emerged with Celsius, that it's different than Luna in the sense that, you know, FTT tokens aren't just going to dilute to infinity, the supply of them. So the price isn't programmatically going to zero. But the reality is there's really only one natural buyer of this thing here. This illiquid basically unregistered security you know you could I, i'm not i'm not an sec simp by any means but you know they're taking it's a it's an unofficial stock buyback they're just taking 30 percent of the revenue or something similar and plowing it into buying this ftt token and now Al- alameda presumably is defending it like a you know a central bank would in a currency crisis so hey guys this is q from bitcoin magazine live As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th, Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called The Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your annual subscription today. So long, long form, uh, we have a really interesting situation developing. Whether it's totally nothing, I, I hope, 
for the sake of this this freaking industry, this battered industry. But yeah, Joe, I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I don't know if you've done any proprietary research yourself, but pretty pretty interesting. For sure. Really, really well done explanation, Dylan, there. I've been following a lot of what you've been doing. You you always crush it with being wicked timely to especially a lot of the Bitcoin native stuff. So I commend you there. You've done really, really good stuff so far documenting it. And a lot of what you said when it comes to this being akin to like, you know, foreign foreign exchange defenses right on the money. Like you can analogize what we're seeing in Europe to exactly what's occurring right now with with FTX and and you'd basically be right on the money. And it's just a symptom of the wider issue of this dash to dollars. Everybody wants to beef up their reserves with dollars. They don't want to hold anything that isn't dollars. And and anything that, that smells fishy or could potentially pose a risk is is not being convertible to dollars for whatever reason. People get out of that immediately. And and for FTX, like the big the primary risk for someone like FTX is them being absolutely drained of reserves as a function of like run on the bank dynamics because of this like huge upshot in public fear surrounding their solvency, right? Even if, you know, they, they don't have liquidity issues, sometimes these things can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in that, you know, there are spaces like this one where the title is FTX contagion in all caps. And then people get, you know, people get afraid and they may withdraw their money for that reason. And with FTX, they, they sort of, they're, the, the reason... FTX, you know, having funding issues, having balance sheet issues, we'll say, or or losing reserves to the extent that they they have solvency risks, is that they're they fall into the category of a shadow bank, right? And so a shadow bank is sort of this bank that doesn't deal with the Federal Reserve directly. They don't have access to gaining bank reserves so they can extend credit. So we all know that banks they lend money into existence, right? Normal banks these days do not take customer funds, excuse me, and actually lend out those customer funds. They have the ability to create a loan out of thin air. And that's because they have this interbank token provided for them, provided to them by the Federal Reserve, just called bank reserves, right? And so shadow banks like FTX, they do not have bank reserves. People may hold dollars in FTX, but that doesn't mean, you know, that if there was a run on the bank, those dollars would be, I think they're probably FDIC insured up to a certain amount. But that said, when it comes to FTX, right, you know, it pays deposit interest, it makes loans, and it, you know, it arbs a profit from that like a normal bank, but it can't lend money into existence like a normal bank that has a relationship with the Federal Reserve. It has to lend out actual deposited money. So there's a there's a level of responsibility with FTX and a level of danger for depositors that isn't present at a normal bank. Right? And this obviously opens it up to liquidity issues when withdrawals receive de- exceed deposits. And, and in instances like this, where you see an extreme amount of uh, outflows from the platform, Dylan, I know you, you, ended, you posted a, a few things about outflows from FTX then it, it could get very, very dicey because banks like this, they, can't, they can only insure deposits to a certain degree and they can't extend lines of credit or recover people's money out of thin air, right? There's, there's no federal reserve here. So, you know, again, I don't think that exactly as you said, I doubt that FTX, the exchange in and of itself is, you know, going tits up, fully insolvent, et cetera. But having your adjacent sort of research quote unquote wing, you know, suddenly be, be in a bind where the public is is selling the, the majority of your reserve balance on mass in this 
relatively illiquid FTT token and you're left holding the bag, you know, that's the that's your collateral that you're probably using to borrow against. So FTX is now forced, you know, in order to maintain the quote unquote solvency of Alameda to buy the FTT token to make sure that the exchange rate doesn't fall below a certain level. And then Alameda has to begin, you know, fire selling its assets to meet margin calls elsewhere, right? Alameda borrows against its FTT. If it's the primary asset that it's holding, then of course it borrows against FTT. And so now FTX is forced into a situation where until this extreme outward selling pressure abates, they have to be the buyer of FTT to prop it up so that Alameda doesn't get margin called elsewhere. Well, now, again, that's conjecture, but essentially I'm just going through like, you know, the, the dynamic of, of holding something as collateral against loans. Yes. No, sorry to interrupt. I just, the thing that, the point that I want to drive home and, and that I've been kind of probing on Twitter that we don't have an answer to, like this is very, very opaque, is the fact that Alameda and FTX are supposed to be, and, you know, I guess, legally are two separate entities and you know your, your thoughts on on ftx as a shadow bank in theory and what they say ftx you send ftx one bitcoin one solana one shiba inu token one tether one usdc erc20 token and they store it and leave it there and that's yours you know and you have a claim on that on-chain thing right there's it's in theory it's a full reserve bank and so this is what i was i, I posted some thoughts way back in the spring when there was some shady stuff with Celsius being in Luna, right? And I was like, hey guys, like, I don't know anything here, but like, if it's even a 1% probability of losing something or, you know, of them closing the doors, you should probably take your funds out. And after Celsius collapsed, and again, I'm not saying like FTX is like a guaranteed, you know, guaranteed collapse or anything of the like, but if I had, if I had money on FTX and there was a, even a 1% probability, I wouldn't be comfortable holding my funds there. There's a lot of people that have also played out this game theory, and the reality is they're pulling their funds. So if they're fully reserved, if FTX and SBF and you know the the great team that that they have there, you know, crypto darling, like the JP Morgan narrative that came out at the bottom of the bear market when they were supposedly bailing up all these funds, and they somehow came out unscathed. Well, I guess that would be Alameda, not FTX in, in general, but the lines are very, very blurred, correct? And so if they were fully reserved, it's no problem at all. You're going to, everyone's going to get their, their money back. Maybe their trading volume goes down for a bit, but trust will come back. Money will come back. Depositors will come back, right? They prove themselves, but this dynamic where everyone's pulling their money. And at the same time, I'm looking at, we're looking at the on-chain ERC 20 token, like wallets. And you're seeing Alameda pull money from, third tier derivative and and spot market exchanges, presumably because they're a giant market maker, you know, and then they're one hop, they're two hopping those funds to an intermediate wallet and then sending them to the FTX hot wallet that's getting drained extremely fast. And maybe they're sending it to kind of send reinforcements in, right, for that FTT token because they're defending this, which again, why are they defending the FTT exchange rate? It makes no sense that they're defending this FTT exchange rate unless there's some sort of margin level or, or a margin call level liquidation level because they've, you know, collateralized this either against their own book, right? Or it's to some lending desk, like all the idiots that lend, you know, for three arrows against like AVAX and like GBTC and whatever else, right? Just like a liquid, terrible collateral, right? They're lending against FTT and they make the market and they own the whole float. And the thing hasn't traded below 22 bucks since, you know, January of 2021, when FTX was a much smaller name and hadn't raised 
via private rounds three separate times. And here's the thing. It's like a feedback loop. And so I'm sorry to, to rant on here, but like same, same thing as the Celsius roadmap, the same thing as a crypto.com, although they don't have insight into their balance sheet or their public company, but they're, they're, or they're laying off all their, all their workers. They have all these exchange tokens. It's the same thing. It's like a reflexive loop up. And then you have all these tokens on your balance sheet. Your, your enterprise value is higher. You raise more money and it's a flywheel. But if you are really, really interested in defending this market, which I can see, like I can see in the data is happening. Why would you like the best case is you end up with another billion or another 500 million of worthless tokens that are just quasi equities that really just, you know, I guess, give you a percent of the revenue. I guess the best case. The worst case is like you buy it all up. And here's the thing that I think people aren't really working around. It's like they're not only buying CZ's 500 million that he's apparently steadily like dumping over the next few months, or he may just do it all in one small swoop. Maybe they do it OTC. The thing that no one's like <laughs> talking about is that they also have to defend against a perpetual swap market where the speculators are all piling in. Like, like Binance has $100 million of open interest right now, and it's all, and $80 million of it's in the last 24 hours. So like, you have to defend against the spot selling that's coming. But you also have a bunch of savage, degenerate crypto traders. They're all shorting this thing because presumably you're levered up. And like, I, I just don't think, like, if I look at these incentives, and I look at just like, kind of piece this picture together. It's clear that so many things are fishy that it just doesn't add up. And maybe this is just like, you know, that Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme where I'm just like pointing at a chalkboard with a bunch of pictures and lines drawn between them. But like, I don't think so. Like, I, <laughs> it really doesn't add up to me. So who knows? But like maybe they just love the FTT token that much and want to own it all. But I really suspect they're levered. And that doesn't really look good, especially because they may or may not be kind of interchanging the assets and the capital of Alameda and FTX. And you can get away with these things in the bull market. But things come to roost in a bear market. And I think we may be in the midst of some more some more drama. But we'll see, I guess. It seems like it. I think that, you know, the, the situation is very, very sticky, but there's also, you know, I don't want to fall into the pit of necessarily equating this to something like Celsius, because I feel they're, they're two different things to some degree. Like this is more, this is more of an instance of, you know, Celsius had these extremely exotic products and therefore it was getting in hot water. And now this is an instance of, it, it could be to the same outcome, you know, of, of, of an emergent insolvency, but they're, they're for two fundamentally different reasons. And I think the issue here is collateral quality. Like exa exactly like you said, we don't know if, because they're a private company, I tried looking at it on the terminal, cannot find anything about, you know, what their, their loan structure, their debt structure, any of it. But if we use our, put on our thinking caps for a moment, spin the propeller around. If we use our fourth, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth order thinking, like why the currency defense? Why are you draining your reserves faster than the Bank of Japan has drained their reserves verifiably on a percentage basis and more aggressively than, than someone like a sovereign like Japan who has had a historically awful foreign exchange history? Why are you draining your reserves faster than them, right? From $394 million in reserves Three days ago to 114 million in reserves today. Why are you burning through that cash to to buy FTT and prop up the market? You know, it it's it's in all likelihood a function of loans that are collateralized with FTT. And what is FTT? Well, it, it's essentially a okay. 
this is a huge space, not financial advice. It is ostensibly, I will say, a securitized product backed by, quote unquote, I put backed by in quotes, backed by this extremely large crypto exchange, FTX, right? And of course, you know, this securitized product is issued and it's purchased and it's quote unquote backed by this, this one of the biggest exchanges in the space, right? So that is what this securitized product is backed by. And because of that reputation, it seems like people, you know, the, the counterparties with Alameda and potentially with FTX, who knows? Again, you know, we, we don't know any of these filings. We can take a look at on-chain and that's why I adore being able to take a look at wallets and on-chain because it makes all of this transparent, right? It's not, it's not locked behind voluntary or state mandated balance sheet entries that you cannot find anywhere, even on the, the terminal, the most powerful financial machine of our time. People have been accepting this not worthless collateral, but collateral that's backed by reputation or reputation alone. And it seems like once the market realizes that, you know, that reputation may be a little bit fickle and you start to see sell pressure, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where more people sell, more people sell, more people sell. So the only reason, right, again, ostensibly, that you'd see this sort of defense is if that there, if there are loans collateralized against your FTT and you, 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 you can't allow FTT to drop below a certain level. You can't allow that exchange rate to fall below a certain level. It threatens your institutions, right? What did we see with in the United Kingdom? Right? And I'm analogizing this to macro because when it comes to the when it comes to the Alameda situation, Dylan, you've been following it much more than I. But for the people in the space who we're, we're all familiar with the situation that occurred, the Bank of England and the guilt market, these liability driven investment strategies, they had a tremendous amount of gilts on their books and they were extremely highly leveraged. And when the, the value of those gilts dropped below a certain level, then it threatened system-wide margin calls, right? You know, these pension funds would need to sell their, their, their gilts, which would create more downward pressure, so on and so forth. And the projection was that that would send the, the, the yield in the 30-year gilt from 3% to like 85 or 9% within hours. And so the Bank of England had to step in and be the marginal buyer of those bonds. And now we're seeing FTX step in and be the marginal buyer of this, you know, this FTT token. But uh, F- and the only reason that that would be. Sheet, though. <laughs> Let's be clear. FTX has an extremely, or not FTX technically, Alameda has an extremely limited balance sheet from what we can see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just like the reality, like these guys are burning money that they don't, like the best case is they, they own their entire balance sheet is the entire free flow of this not even a security it's like not a security because that's the sec like this is tokenomic something right it's like a quasi share buyback like it's what a mess man this i think it's kind of cool it's kind of crazy to see you know maybe they were just swimming naked the whole time i i don't know yeah this is i mean uh, at this point it's like we we talk about it's easier if the loans you know if, if you have to pay down your debt when your debt is denominated in you know your native currency and so for the united states dollar yeah sure you know, the, the total return value of bonds plummeting through the floor probably isn't that big of an issue for, you know, the United States Treasury. But for someone like Alameda, right, who, you know, they're, they're sort of adjacent company, FTX, they issue this token, you know, it, it, they, they can print it out of thin air, sure, but the debt isn't denominated in this FTT token. And now that they've been forced into a, into a corner where because, you know, they, they collateralize all their loans with this really, really poor quality collateral. Now they're in a situation where they, they have to burn through cash. It's either it's either go it's either, you know, face extreme balance sheet turmoil and potentially get margin called one way or burn through reserves and pray to God that, you know, you you can prop up the value of this thing without completely draining all of your all of your stablecoin reserves. 
and that's sort of the issue that we find ourselves in now, right? It's, it, you know, this is the, the crypto community wider is now learning all of the lessons of, of traditional finance, in, you know, at, at the speed of light, right? This year alone, and again, Dylan, you've done a tremendous job in it. We've seen what can, what can arise from exotic products promising yield from nowhere, right? Who are taking on a tremendous amount of risk or, or printing a token out of thin air to pay you. We've seen what occurs when those people fa face balance sheet issues. And now we're seeing what occurs when relatively small entity that's connected to a much larger entity with a much stronger capital base takes out a, an extremely, you know, uh, ostensibly that's why these, these reserves are being drained so much, takes out loans collateralized with a token that was printed out of air. Right. So now we're all getting a lesson in collateral quality. Right. Is the is my collateral deep in liquid? There's a lot of utility in that. People like to rag on U.S. Treasuries a lot and say that it's an IOU. And I will not disagree with that. But what we're witnessing right now is what happens when you're levered, you're extremely levered on balance sheet and you're facing, you know, you're, you, you, what you're collateralized with is not deep and liquid. When, you fa when you're faced with sell pressure and the, va the value of it drops much more quickly than, let's say, if you were, you know, collateralizing your loan with, you know, let, let's say a U.S. Treasury, right? You know, the value of that drops far less on sell pressure than it does for, you know, an extremely liquid, you know, shit coin, like, like FTT, not a shit coin, right? But you catch my drift. And so earlier this year, Bitcoiners got a lesson on exotic products and staying away from them. And now we're getting a lesson in collateral quality and the utility of having a deep and liquid market for collateral to actually take loans out against. And it seems like FTX is having that lesson too. Like earlier this year, they were top dog buying all these distressed assets from everybody. But now it seems like, you know, some of the two of the biggest players in the space are duking it out. And I don't know if you have the inside scoop there as to, to why this is occurring or why CZ decided to, to come out publicly and say that he was selling this because it seems that 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 action right there has created a cohort of sell pressure from retail investors who probably wouldn't have sold otherwise. And now between the two of them, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it seems like the gloves are off, you know, and yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not a pretty picture all around. We're, we're all getting a lesson in real time about having a good quality liquid collateral to take loans out against. Well, I, I think it's, I mean, it's, that's a, that's a great point. I think it's even more than that. It's the fact that it's like, what's, what's more fake? The FTX is like $32 billion private valuation that it tried to raise at two months ago and successfully raised that earlier, earlier in 2021 or FTT's market cap. And the, like the reality is they fed, the, there was a positive feedback loop on each other to like, think about it, right? Like FTX, whether it was them or Almeida or, you know, separate and, and, and their two VC arms just merged like two months ago. Right. So like confirming what a lot of people said that, Hey, like, this is like Arthur Hayes, right? Like got indicted and all this other stuff because he was like trading, supposedly trading against his, his customers. Like ask any, especially, you know, most of these guys are cartoon characters or whatnot, you know, to say this sort of stuff publicly in a public forum, but ask anyone that moves real size, like seven, eight, nine, nine figures in crypto markets. I mean, it's really hard to do that now, but especially in the bull market. And they'll tell you that like the liquidity on FTX and like filling positions and, and especially in the more liquid stuff, like it's almost predatory. And I think it's it's like fairly like, you know, this technically isn't like a verified, right? But anecdotally, I could say with some, some you know, like with a, with a lot of confidence that, you know, you can see sometimes when I post these, like 
liquidation levels or like and, and it's basically just like quantitative estimates of where margin positions are opened and where they'd be forced to close. The reality is that FTX had a black box into all of that stuff themselves. So if they, you know, somehow had a hedge fund that could that could, you know, have size and remember, like these markets, they have peer to peer leverage markets and they have like the perpetual markets. So how lucrative would it be to have like a shop that had all this data like adjacent to you, like they're in the same damn building, basically, I mean, not technically, but like how lucrative would it, would it be? Right. And while and, and you can do that, you can you can use your FTT token to raise your enterprise value, maybe get collateral back loans. But like there's no real natural buyers to this thing. And as it unwinds. Like, oh, all of a sudden you have debt. Was like Almeida supposedly came out like unscathed when every single, whether it's jump, right? Like the smart money jump, three arrows, capital, like all of these, everyone they were doing deals with was damaged and they weren't. And then <laughs> we find out that like, oh, Voyager goes bust because three arrows defaulted on $500 million of obligations. Like, I don't even know, like 20,000 Bitcoin and a bunch of USDC or something along those lines. And oh, who's the creditor? I'm sorry, who's a debtor to Voyager? Oh, Almeida Research for 370 million. Like the 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 you know JP Morgan's of crypto are actually borrowing money from all these firms that they're supposedly bailing out. And the terms and conditions they didn't even bail anyone out. They extended credit lines that had a bunch of different basically opt outs where they could just like bail at any time. I don't even really think they've extended any capital. And I could be wrong on that. So someone let me know about that. But it seemed like all just confidence shelling ultimately. And, you know, the raise, the, the, the raise, the attempted raise a couple months back, I'm not sure if they got any capital and certainly trying to raise the same valuation. Like this was a laughable part to me. And I started to raise my eyebrows a little more was when they were trying to raise back in September at a $32 billion valuation. And I look at Coinbase's stock. And this is the funny thing with, with private Bitcoin miners too. It's like, oh, we were $500 million enterprise in, in 2021. Great. What are we trying to raise at right now in, in the sixth month or eighth month of 2022? Oh, we're trying to raise a 500 million. It's like, oh, okay. Well, all the publicly minded public miners are down 80 to 90%. So FTX is like, yeah, we're a $32 billion business. Like we're trying to raise another billy. It's like, oh, well, Coinbase's stock is literally down only. And maybe you're better than Coinbase. It's like, great. But look at trading fees. Look at, or look at, look at trading volume, right? Like you're just, it's just not the same business as it was in the bull market when you were, you know, could put up a slide deck and be like, yeah, like, Year over year, month over month, week over week, day over day growth is literally up only. Like, look at these projections. Look at this Kager. And so, yeah, like I, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of listing off a bunch of seemingly random points here, but like, where there's smoke, there's a fire. You know, seemingly. No, um, but at the end of the day, Dylan, it, it's all connected because every single point that you listed out, it, it was a function of being able to borrow at extreme valuations on paper that that simply don't reflect the health or the balance sheet of or the health of the company and the ability of its balance sheet to take it through difficult times like this, right? When there's extreme euphoria and liquidity everywhere and everybody, you know, they can they can prop up their balance sheet. In the case of FTX and, and Alameda, they can look much more financially healthy than, you know, they otherwise would be because their token has a lot of ascribed market value. They can borrow against it. They can pump their books and then borrow against that. And it's this rinse, repeat thing. And it, it, it occurred in different areas, but all across the, the Bitcoin and wider crypto ecosystem. And now we're seeing you know, we're, we're seeing the remnants of that. The most fragile individuals got pruned first in the, in the form of Celsius. And even I didn't think that we would see, uh, you know, somebody like uh, somebody like an FTX uh, or an Alameda Research 
by extension, you know, face these credit concerns. But but here we are, right? People, you know, lenders, uh, they they severely overestimated the ability of these uh, these borrowers to to finance. You know, and in bad times, it's it's really biting people in the ass, and everybody is rushing to dollars. Yeah, no. So so uh, just, sorry to interrupt, but literally everything you said was was connected by that by that sole fact, right? People just overextended themselves because you know it, times were good, and it seemed like they would never end. And, and like another thing is, we know like I, if you would have told me in twenty twenty one. And this is where like I, I was wrong about some of the like the Bitcoin specific price action and the fact that like we were I recognized like we were we were in a broader economic downturn. But in terms of like Bitcoin itself being more of a bubble than I thought, like I was looking at open interest and, and you know, futures funding and the basis. I'm like, all right, like the conditions look like they've, they've gotten a lot better. Like the speculation seems like it's mostly kind of rooted its way out. And what I didn't realize was that like you had not in publicly available data like with derivative exchanges or whatever, or like on-chain leverage in the case of like the Ethereum ecosystem, where you can kind of see some of that stuff in DeFi, et cetera, was that, oh, like, yeah, Suzu was levering up his AVAX position to punt Luna and like all these other shit coins. And it's like, oh, like we didn't know that, you know, this bucket shop was cross-margining this illiquid shit coin to prop up this. And like, and to think that, oh, like, yeah, Alameda actually throughout like all of 2021 had just like this pristine collateral called FTT exchange token. Um, and like, by the way, here's a fun tidbit. I just figured I just found this out today and was going to post it to Twitter, but I was decided to release it in the newsletter tonight that we're posting about some of this stuff that all that we're rambling about. But guess when exact the exact day that FTT's exchange rate topped and the day was when Binance listed FTT slash BUSD, Binance Stablecoin, collateralized perpetual swaps. So there you go, guys. You know, FTX on its home turf with spot exchanges, with Alameda backing it, with a huge war chest and, you know, with their own perpetual swap market where they can market make and be absolute sharks. Yeah, that they can pump it all day long. But the minute, literally the top tick by the day. (laughs) <laughs> that that Binance lifts, lists perpetual swap with their own stable coin on their own order books, FTT tops. And you start to see, you know, along with the broader market, right? Because there's those, those cross correlations, et cetera. Bitcoin going up or down matters much, much more than, than, you know, Binance listing another contract. But the reality is that this isn't just FTX game now. Because Binance also has spot markets and perps markets. And both are deeply under the exchange rates for FTX at the moment. So there's sharks in the water. And like maybe, Joe, we spent 50 minutes today. Well, I guess we, we talked about the broader economy first. But maybe we spent all this time today, the second half of this space, and Sam and I are, are kind of going back and forth, trying to aggregate all this information to, to put out to our newsletter tonight. And it's just like, it was all wrong because there's no leverage or collateral. Uh, and they just want to support their token price. And great. And then we wasted a bunch of time and whatever. But if not, like, there is, CZ is not a dumb guy, right? He is absolutely not a dumb guy. And when he read within, you know, within a reasonable doubt that there may be some problems here, he said, no, dumping my $500 million stake. And I'm going to quote retweet a bunch of threads and make Luna and make Luna comparisons and quote retweet threads about Alameda being insolvent. And, you know, with it with a, like the full understanding that 
I have millions of, of degenerate wealthy speculators on my, on my exchange that will short this token with me. Not with me, right? But CZ is not a dumb guy, guys. Let's be real. And some people are like telling, like saying that I'm like, you know, helping fuel, like fuel these flames or start a run. I said the same thing about Celsius. If you have a fully reserved exchange, it is not a problem. Run the banks, run them. Like the proof of keys in Bitcoin. This is how it works. And if you can't service that or you're collateralized or you have some shady operations between entities, then, you know, that's that's going to go bust. And that's how the market works. So not rooting for anything. I have no idea how this plays out. But the more I learn, the more I confirm my suspicions to begin with, I guess is how I will sign off on a personal level. I know we got 10 more minutes, but I want to open it up. But we haven't re- really even heard from Sam, PQ, Chris, Jeff. Or back to you, Joe. I don't want to. I don't want to hog the mic. Love it, Dylan. Just to quickly say before before uh, I pass it off to the wider room, you're exactly right, Dylan. Like it could be a nothing burger. There's some degree of you know. There's been. It's basically been all macro when it comes to, you know, the research that people have been consuming because, you know, macro has been in the, the, the driver's seat, obviously, you know, Bitcoin's this uh, extremely beholden to the macro picture. And so it, events like this, we may not know it in hindsight, you know, th- this could be getting uh, not necessarily blown out of proportion, but we, we could be, there, there could be no steam behind this or could there could be an absolutely massive amount of steam behind this. And it, it could be the start of, you know, something even bigger. Either way, I think it's it, it's worthwhile to report, right? You know, it, it may not end up exactly as you said, you know, they may just want to support their token price. But at the end of the day, you know, it it, it is the most relevant Bitcoin native, crypto native thing that's, that's occurring. Uh, and for that reason, you know, it's worth reporting. So like, what do you guys think? Am I just a crazy conspiracy theorist TM or like, is there, is there something fishy here? <laughs> I think Dylan, you've been hanging out with a few too many. No, I'm just fucking with you. I, I will say this, just chiming in more. So as it, as an observer who participates, I find it very interesting that, you know, we saw the contagion happen during the Luna debacle and the Bitcoin price like reflected as such, but there was no justification for the stock market to also have the crash that it had at that same time. And, you know, we talk a lot and I'm not trying to like point fingers or say anything. I will, I will lay claim to the idea myself that I believe the markets have not found their low yet. And I genuinely believe the worst is yet to come. And then we get news like this that further confirms like a potential contagion that could affect the price of, I would say, the market cap of the crypto industry as a whole. And then as a byproduct, maybe the price of Bitcoin is reflected. But we're going to also see these type of pain points seen in the public markets. And there's just something weird and fishy, in my opinion, that the public markets keep reflecting and being impacted by contagion events in the broader crypto industry. That's just sort of what I want to throw in, maybe to strengthen, maybe just to confuse everyone I don't know. I think you're saying the tail's wagging the dog. And I, I think it's the like, you know, three arrows and, and Luna and all this other stuff unwound, maybe because of uh, the S&P losing its, its support kind of as a trigger point. But I don't know, maybe. At the end of the day, we're, we're heading into this much broader growth slowdown. You know, it... It stands to reason that with things like this occurring, we, you know, a lot of these balance sheets are hidden from the public eye. 
we don't know the counterparties of FDX or FTT. You know, we, we simply don't know that, right? A lot of this occurs off chain. And so there could, this could be the tip of the iceberg in terms of another unwind, another sort of contagion, quote unquote, event um, where, you know, assets are sold at fire sale prices. And it, eventually there's there's a floor found for these distressed, you know, cryptocurrency assets and in, in FTT and, and others. Because we don't know that, you know, I think what what we all are aware of is that we're, we're entering into a much larger growth slowdown than the very, very small one that we experienced with two barely negative quarters of GDP in 2022. In 2023, chances are we're going to see that, but but to a much larger degree. The Fed has been extremely wayward, and even in the face of leading indicators abroad signaling distress and the fact that course CPI is a rate of change, it will come down. They've chosen to to move higher when they very well could leave rates at a, you know, a, like a two and a half, three handle and leave them there for several years. And, and, and that would allow a lot of that bad debt to get pruned from the economy and inflation to normalize again. But they've chosen to be extremely aggressive with their approach to this. And so I think everyone in this room should should be made aware of the the much much broader potentially more prolonged growth slowdown that we experienced in 2023 you know and until we see some sort of some sort of pause some sort of shift in monetary policy whether that's spurred on you know by uh, some sort of black swan event or financial distress abroad i tend to believe the latter then risk asset pricing won't necessarily be supported bitcoin included but i tend to believe that as a function of that pause and the extreme behavioral support that we've felt at this $20,000 level, I tend to think that there isn't necessarily an impetus in Bitcoin's case for further extreme downside. You know, there, there, there may very well be something here and, and uh, Bitcoin will certainly be impacted by, you know, the, the contagion risks posed by the largest exchange in the space, having its research wing potentially go insolvent, having to burn through its reserves, making it more fragile in an environment like this. That would certainly, have, of course, have impact on Bitcoin. Um, but I tend to think that this global growth slowdown that we're headed to and the fact that we're, sh we're seeing shifts at the margin from these Fed speakers, it to me, it's indicative that there is an inflection point to more accommodative. And when I say more accommodative, I mean a pause in the, in the aggressive pace of hiking and monetary tightening. I tend to think that the Fed probably won't be able to unwind its balance sheet to the degree that it wants to. And that will be more supportive of risk asset pricing. That's sort of my, my two cents to, to wrap it all up tie it up with a bow. I know we have some minutes here, so I'd, I'd love to throw it back to the Dr. Jeff or Sam. I know you haven't spoken yet or, or Dylan for your thoughts on the, on the wider picture as we close out here. Yeah, Sam, you got anything going on? You've been awfully quiet. <laughs> yeah, I was just letting Dylan and Joe rip their, their better Twitter spaces, ramblers than, than me. I, I mean, I, I think that's a good point, Joe, of like what you say. I, I think me and Dylan have, we've taken the, I guess, the other side of the coin. The market will tell in time. That, you know, essentially I, I kind of sit with when in terms of price until proven otherwise, you know, my main worry is that, you know, this duration of where we're going in this tightening cycle, the uniqueness that we're in today, kind of like a, what I see is like a once a century kind of type situation happening. I still have that kind of probabilistic downside for Bitcoin of its coming and, and also just coming for kind of risk assets broadly. And I think it takes a lot of time. It won't happen overnight. And it could take another hundred days before we see any of that. So, but, but totally agree in the sense that, you know, at the end of it, you can't run down, you can't realistically run down the balance sheet. Eventually that has to, has to turn over and, and kind of increase again. But right now I think it's a, it's a really unique liquidity tide that 
I personally am not interested in, in fighting or, and I would rather see it through because I think it's one of those historic kind of moments that we're working through. And do you think over the next decade that, that Bitcoin is one of those answers? But as of right now, you know, it, especially when we talk about firms like Alameda and, and FTX, one point that I, you guys didn't touch on is like, there's some of the biggest market makers in the space as well, too. So now you're talking about people that provide a lot of liquidity for all of these markets, and they have a lot of assets and tokens that, you know, if they go down this path, they're going to have to offload on the market as well. So Personally, would rather see that through, but, you know, great hearing you talk today, Joe. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. I appreciate that. Hey, oh, Dr. Jeff, in, go ahead. Just because you're talking about the macro heading into 2023, and I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but love to know, like, what you think for a time frame. Like, when does this business cycle bottom? And, and, you know, we know risk assets tend to bottom well before or kind of early on in a recession. So if we're thinking a pretty serious recession in 2023, like, what does your crystal ball say? Like, like how, how far does this last? Does it extend into 2024 possibly? Or do you think it gets, it's going to be the darkest in 2023 and then we see a light at the end of the tunnel? Love it. Yes, my crystal ball. Obviously, as you know, you know, macro can't necessarily, you know, analyzing markets can't necessarily provide us a crystal ball. But to 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 dabble in that space, I think we're going to see the worst of it in 2023. Exactly like you said, we tend to see risk markets generally like they bottom, they bottom relatively early on in a recession. They tend to lead the wider economic downturn because at the end of the day, we're talking about like the difference between asset prices and the health of a much larger economy. And so you're you're in all likelihood, in my personal opinion, based on, you know, history and the fact that, you know, what I just said, they've been, asset prices have been extremely supported and they tend to bottom relatively early on in recessions. I think we see the worst of it, you know, Q2 going into Q3 2023. We've seen several denial rallies from the S&P 500. And I tend to think that abroad, the issues, the dollar funding issues that we're seeing with the Swiss National Bank that we're starting to see emerge with the Bank of Japan, with the Bank of England, you know, and, and with relatively soon the ECB as some of these more fragile countries, these more fragile borrowers start to fragment and the ECB starts to enact its anti-fragmentation tool, that it that will have that will eventually push more accommodative monetary policy. Do we see further downside for risk assets? If if more accommodative monetary policy comes prior to risk assets bottoming, then you probably don't see much further downside. But if history repeats itself, if you know the global economy re remains relatively bust, we could see we could see one more major leg for risk assets. And I think if that were to occur, that would occur next year between Q2 and Q3. I think again, my my themes moving into Q4 and for the you know beginning of Q beginning of 2023 as well are fragility and either intervention or a shift for policy, right? So fragility in uh, rates ri rising to such degree that borrowers are, borrowers are squeezed, you know, the, the value of, of collateral dropping to such a degree that it forces, you know, sort of these fire, fire selling dynamics of distressed assets, when and where that will occur in all likelihood, Europe and some of those more fragile countries, and then intervention, right? So we've seen intervention from Japan for several decades, and now intervention into their foreign, foreign exchange markets. We saw intervention from the Bank of England. We are about to see, um, in my very humble opinion, intervention from the European Union, excuse me, rather, the, the European Central Bank. You know, it's been a while uh, since they've uh, they've fired up their anti-fragmentation tool. I believe we're going to see some targeted bond buying over there. And then the last two to drop, the last individual central entity to make a change in monetary policy will be the Fed. Now, if that occurs over the next three months, then not much further downside for risk assets, recession abated. But with how hawkish Jerome Powell is, 
chances are we're not going to see something like that. And if that is the case, to, to repeat myself again, I think we see the absolute gigabottom for, I'll say, broader risk risk asset indices like the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Q2, Q3 of 2023. Now, if that occurs, I, I, I agree with the Dr. Jeff thesis that things will get worse before they get better. But we have the, the global liquidity facilities for things to get better extremely quickly. And I'll leave it there. Joe, you, you want to give a handoff to what you guys are doing in the Bitcoin layer? You've been putting out some great stuff with Nick for quite a, quite some time now. I know Nick's been doing it a little little bit longer than before you joined, but yeah, just tell us tell us where we can find you for, for more content. Most definitely appreciate it, Dylan. So over at the Bitcoin layer, you can find me. I am a markets research associate over there. I work with Nick Batia. I'm sure a lot of the people in this space have read Layered Money. Essentially what the Bitcoin layer is, is we cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. So not dissimilar to BM Pro, who do excellent, excellent, excellent work. We also are a markets research provider that that cover similar work, but we have a focus on rates and on money markets and how Bitcoin fits into that. We tend to view Bitcoin as you know this future base layer reserve asset and we're essentially tracking its monetization through time through a traditional finance lens. We're helping you understand the wider global macro economy at the same time as we're explain, you know, tracking the monetization of Bitcoin through time and fitting all these pieces together. So that's essentially what we do. We have a Substack, and today, if you click the link up in the nest, we have 50% off for a, a BM Pro Twitter Spaces special. If you click that link, you can get a monthly or annual subscription for 50% off with, uh, with the code BM Pro. We, we give the code BM Pro. You guys are, are the OGs. You guys have been doing a tremendous job for, for over a year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and yeah, no, it's extremely exciting. We also have a YouTube channel. We've started a guest lecture series where we recently had Michael Saylor on. We've also had Brent Johnson on and, and a lot more guests coming up in the future. And uh, it's incredibly exciting. We're, we're a small burgeoning business, but we're, we're certainly scrappy and we're certainly growing very fast. So I appreciate you guys having me on. I was an absolute rip and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Cheers, my friend. Until next time. Till next time. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today.